Did you know that over 60,000 new tracks are uploaded to Spotify every single day? That's a new track every 1.4 seconds, and that's just on one platform. With so much music now available, it's more important than ever to stand out from the crowd. So it's not surprising that more artists are starting to use less conventional sonic textures in their music, like field recordings. Perhaps you've always wanted to infuse the sounds of nature or your favourite city into your own tracks, but not having the right gear or knowledge might have held you back. Well, if that's the case, you're going to love the brand new guide I just created, teaching you how to start field recording with just a smartphone. And it's all yours for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. Yep, you really do just need a humble smartphone and some minimal extra gear that doesn't have to break the bank to get started with field recording. And I've laid it all out in this handy five-point checklist. So download it for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel and elevate your music to the next level. I've never put myself out as just a singer. I've always been very confident that I am a musician at first and foremost, and that, um, and you know, I guess I had that confidence of training and things like that, and I just, I haven't ever taken shit from people in in some respects, and if I felt uncomfortable, then I've just said, I'm not doing that again, and I'll move on. But then also, I feel like I've been quite lucky in that I have chosen different avenues where, you know, in electronic music, I do feel that it is quite, it is quite safe, like, there's so many lovely people, like, um, and I've been lucky that I've met those people and worked with them and had that trust, because I know that some people haven't. Hello and welcome to Girls Twiddling Knobs. My name's Isabel and over the last decade, my self-produced and self-released music has amassed over 25 million Spotify streams. I also have a PhD in sonic arts, but I wasn't always this confident with music tech. In fact, I still hear those self-doubt gremlins in my head from time to time. I started this podcast to help more female-identifying musicians start recording and producing their music and learn from other women making music with technology. If that's your cup of tea, then you're in the right place, my friend. Let's dive in. Let's be real. We've all been there. You're finding your groove with writing and production until one day you realise you've arrived in a creative comfort zone. Sure, you could keep coasting through, but you know deep down that your music just feels a little bit predictable. And being predictable and even boring yourself while you're writing is definitely not why you make music. Well, like I said, we've all been there, myself included. And that's exactly why I created my free online quiz, Discover Your Female Producer Spirit Guide. Now, in just a few clicks, you'll find who your female producer, sister from another mister is, and all her voodoo magic ways to inject some fresh, new ideas into your writing and production that will get you grinning from ear to ear. Just go to femalediymusician.com forward slash quiz and get out of that comfort zone right now. But let's get into this week's episode, Knob Twiddlers, because today I am delighted to be joined by the wonderfully talented composer and producer Hannah Peel. 
Now, it's fair to say that Hannah has forged a truly mesmerising artistic practice and an impressive career to boot in experimental electronic music. But don't be fooled. Hannah will be the first to tell you it's taken lots of hard work and some bold, courageous moves to get to where she is with her music today. And when we sat down to record this episode, we discussed all of this, her new album Fur Wave, and so much more. And I have a feeling that you're going to love hearing all about it. I'd love to start by just asking you how you first got into um, music, but also specifically working with music technology and electronic music. Yeah, so I guess from a very early age, I've always learned to play music. Um, My family are quite musical. You know, we were always kind of told to learn not one instrument, but three. (laughs) So from an early age, I played like the violin and the trombone and the piano. And then I studied it at university, but I studied kind of um, performing arts music. So I worked a lot with the actors and dancers and started getting more into technology there because in it was a, a college called Lippa in Liverpool and I lived with some sound engineers and we were constantly going in the studios and recording till like 4am and living that kind of life and then getting up for <laughs> classes at 9am um, and it was all rather exciting whereas I wouldn't do it right now no. <laughs> um, but you can when you're younger you feel like you've got all the energy of the world um, so I guess I started to get into various different things and I bought a, a Korg MS-20. Um, I didn't really know how to use it. I had a, like a little micro Korg and a, a little monotribe kind of beat machine thing. But I didn't really know what to do with them. I just knew that I was a good keyboardist and I was good with sound. And and then when I was making my first record in twenty. 11, no, 2010 actually, um, during that year it was in a studio that was in Shoreditch in London that was um, owned by this kind of electronic collector analogue called Benj, who has a studio called Meme Tune, which is M-E-M-E Tune, um, which you can find online and he has the most amazing collection of synths and modular synths, walls and walls and walls, and I mean like keyboards everywhere, drum machines. It was just like a treasure trove. So actually when I was making my record, which is actually next door to that, um, I always used to kind of pop in and say hello. And then he was working with John Fox of Ultravox in the 80s. um, And he was forming a new band called John Fox and the Maths. And every time I was making my record with this um, producer, Mike Lindsay, um, he's now based in um, on the east Margate. That's where he's based now. Uh, he John Fox used to come in through the back of our studio to go to the toilet, and he used to always say hello. And he was like this kind of really elegant gentleman. Uh, and so we all got talking. And then when they finished the John Fox and the Maths record, they, he wanted to put a band together. And he asked, "Do you play the violin and you play keyboards?" And I was like, "Yeah." And I just had the kind of baptism of fire where you are given every synth possible and told to recreate the sounds of the record. Um, Wow. And so, yeah, I learned very, very quickly how to use filters and oscillators and, you know, different types of synthesizers just to get the kind of required sound during those rehearsals. 
and it was a lot of work but it was amazing and it kind of set me off in a whole different world of, of sound manipulation and and how to control it. So, you know, during those live shows, I had two or three keyboards that I was playing. I had my um, violin was going through distortion and chorus and delays and basically as much noise as possible. And then I was singing at the, at the same time. And, you know, it was a fully electronic band. So, and we toured all over the place and it was just wonderful. So that was kind of like end of 2011, 2012. 2013 and we've done a couple of records since but because John is a lot older we haven't been touring I think we actually were going to tour this year but you know because of Covid it's not been possible at all so yeah wow that's I mean quite an unusual experience for many musicians but I think especially a woman to be kind of given all of that equipment and then told right replicate these sounds and and stick your violin through all these different you know delays and and sing as well and it sounds like it was like you say a really really steep but incredible learning curve yeah yeah I mean yeah I never thought of it I, I mean I, I guess I've never thought of me, myself being a woman at, at times I have noticed it actually later career but when I was younger I never thought anything of it and especially Benj and John they just treated me like every you know equal there was no kind of sexism at all it was literally if, if not anything I was given more to do than anybody else so um which I value and I guess I've always been lucky that I've worked with a lot of people that have been like that and have entrusted me and you know even now working with Wella Paul Wella and doing all his arrangements and things it's it's just as if you know it doesn't matter there's no kind of difference in in gender at all and I I appreciate that because when I have experienced it it's been awful um, yeah yeah I'm, I'm curious then like why do you think the people that you've worked with especially at the beginning because it's there's so I know because of working with so many women now and teaching so many women production and music technology that that's quite an unusual experience you've just described that yeah. especially as a younger woman you know that people would not see any difference and that they would treat you as totally competent you know all that stuff so why do you think that was the case um I guess several things I've never put myself out as just a singer I've always been very confident that I am a musician at first and foremost and that um and you know I guess I had that confidence of training and things like that and I just wasn't I, I guess I never I I guess I haven't ever taken I haven't ever taken shit from people in, in some respects and if I felt uncomfortable then I've just said I'm not doing that again and I'll move on but then also I feel like I've been quite lucky in that I have chosen different avenues where you know in electronic music I do feel that it is quite it is quite safe like there's so many lovely people like um and I've been lucky that I've met those people and worked with them and had that trust because I know that some people haven't so it's it you know it was a kind of going from my first record which is quite poppy and you know in the band world there's a lot of egos um you know touring with a lot of bands and I guess when I kind of found electronic music it, it was more about the tech and it was more about the the knowledge rather than whether you were a woman or a man it didn't really matter yeah so then coming to the tech and the knowledge, do you think you've always felt confident with that? Do you feel like you've always picked that up quickly? 
Oh, no. <laughs> 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 uh, it's funny because when it synthesizes, I do feel like I pick it up quickly. It just feels like second nature. I don't know why that is, but it just feels good. I think there's a level of experimentation. I'm not a perfectionist. I like the nuances. I like things that are slightly broken sometimes. And um, But coming to production and mixing and using the computer that was a very big learning curve and also there was a part of me from wanting to play it in person to to going to a computer and going how the hell do I make this work and being self-taught as well it wasn't a case that I studied music tech or I understood microphones or I understood EQs I've just had to learn everything as I've gone on but I guess you know, it was wonderful. I worked with Erlen Cooper for years together, making records. You know, as he was learning, I was learning. There was always a kind of a balance and he helped mix a lot of things and taught me a lot of things and set up templates for me so that now I am self-sufficient. I do produce everything and I record everything. And, and I know as well that if I haven't got a certain skill set, I will get somebody who has. Like, I'm not going to force myself and make myself feel miserable that I can't do something. I would rather give it to someone who's amazing at mixing than put myself through that pain. Because I guess, yeah. you know, now I don't have the time to do that. Yeah. I think that, you know, you know, as you get older, you do know what your strengths and weaknesses are and what you want do and do not want to do. And yeah. I have got to that stage where I don't want to learn how to fully mixed but I will get things to you know the things that have been released that have been mixed by me that I've just felt oh that's all right that's great <laughs> so yeah so um it's not all the time but especially when it comes to film and tv and stuff it's just better to have everybody else mm-hmm. who's good at it do it rather than yourself mm-hmm. yeah I think it's a really good point because I think sometimes we can really pressure ourselves to be able to do everything really well because mm-hmm. um, otherwise we're worried that people will kind of point that out and say oh you're not a real producer or you're not a real this or that um Ugh, and looks to that I hate all yeah that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and we're all so different and like you describing um you know how you would kind of give mixing to somebody else I I would I love mixing you know that's like one of my favorite parts of the production process so yeah. we, we've all got these different um kind of skills and I think that's why for me I, I've always loved soundscape composition and electroacoustic music because it's the crafting is in the mixing as mm-hmm. much as you know there's the mixing is kind of so intertwined with the process of making it. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting um, thinking about that, but really important for anyone listening to hear that and know that you don't have to do everything and it's important to collaborate with people because you will learn from them and um, you'll get better results, potentially. Definitely, I learn something every day and I think that's the whole beauty of music, isn't it? And I guess, just going back to the mixing thing, you know, I give, whenever whenever I give my stems and everything they are complete with the delays and the reverb that I would Mm -hmm. prefer I always do a reference to to so you know it's more about balancing the sound like sometimes I find that this room that I work in is too bass heavy or not enough bass sometimes and then I'll push the bass so it's it's more about that side because yes I do love mixing and production but yes the final tweaks no I would rather trust somebody else (laughs) yeah yeah well so for me like I I love that but I would always hand the mastering over to somebody else because that's the stage that I'm like okay I want a fresh set of ears and this is the time where you know I I need that so 
yeah, it's it's interesting. We've all got our different processes, yeah. um, and they evolve obviously over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hannah, maybe you could tell us, maybe for anyone that isn't familiar with your music, could you just try? I know it's really hard because your music spans so many different <laughs> contexts, not just genres even. But can you just give us an idea of what's your music about? <laughs> what turns you on as a musician? Um, do you know, at the at the core of every single thing I do, there is a story. And I think that is the main... There is a narrative. There is a, a kind of context behind everything, whether it be science and nature or whether it be an actual story and narrative within film and, or TV or whether it be a kind of concept record, that a story that I've completely made up. And then the, the sound world around that story takes itself. And maybe that's the kind of, you know, I'm Irish, but I don't sound Irish. Maybe that's the kind of the folk side coming out that I've you know, brought up with the tales and, and the, the late night stories that you get told by everybody. But um, I, I think... I think that's the kind of general basis of everything. I, I like exploring and I like creating sound worlds and if it has a story attached to it, it gives me more weight to put everything into it and make it more. So, for example, the Mary Cassio album, it synthesises and colliery brass band. And actually, I grew up in Yorkshire as a child um, when we moved over here to... Um, you know, playing the trombone in in brass bands and making my way up the kind of the uh, the establishment as it is into the championship sections and things like that they have. But um, so I already knew the brass band well. But so when they approached me and said, "Would you like to write a piece for Colliery Brass Band and Synths?" and I was like, "Yes, I totally would," because I knew what kind of sound world that would encompass and what kind of you know what what frequencies the brass band encompasses so that when you have the synthesizers they have a different role you know they're taking on the role of the sub bass and the higher end frequencies that you can't get and um i guess having that story of mary cassio this lady that she's in her 80s and has always dreamed of going to space and this journey is her leaving uh to cassiopeia the star constellation um it gave me something to write about and it wasn't just about her it was about me and about kind of the situation we were in I was writing it when we were having the Brexit referendum and Barnsley in particular was very full and I felt it was very narrow-minded on a, as a whole so me taking a colliery brass band and putting it in space felt like a bit of a rebellion against that. <laughs> Wonderful it's fascinating um and obviously you have a new record. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so you can, can you tell us about Fur Wave? Yeah, so I guess one of the, just going back to that earlier question, one of the things is I do solo albums and that keeps me going, but I also do soundtracks and that also keeps me turned on in a sense. Like I love the different collaborations between you know, doing your own thing and then doing something where it involves like a team of 15 to 20 people with their own view as well. Um, But Fur Wave uh, began, um, I was approached by EMI uh, Publishing, they, or EMI Productions actually, but they uh, have a whole library um, collection and um, particularly the KPM library, which is, you know, going back 
40, 50 years of library music and they were commissioning new library records and they, they said, do you want to do one? And I was kind of like, well, I don't really know what library music is. <laughs> um, you know, because I've never had to write any for anything. I knew what it was like, you know, it's where TV companies and people go to use music that sounds like what is current, um, mm-hmm. but they don't have to pay the higher license fees. But I didn't really know what that world was. And, you know, it's actually fascinating the amount of people that write library music and you would never know. It's it's a great way to earn income and still try out different genres and styles that you wouldn't necessarily release. So it is a, a fascinating world. But anyway, they came to me and said, we have this Delia Derbyshire radiophonic workshop Um album that was made in the 70s called Electrosonic. It's quite famous because Delia Derbyshire uh, went under LaRousse, the redhead, um, as a different name because she was obviously working still under maybe the BBC at that point or I'm not too sure I need to uh, clarify that before I say something but uh, they said you can take this record and do what you want with it and make a new one and so I was like okay this sounds really interesting and on the album the original album you've got all these tracks that are like different sounds that would have maybe been synced up in kind of like I don't know factory or science labs or industrial documentaries you know like kind of or otherworldly you know the track names are quest and 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 things that are just very of that era in terms of looking to the future um and so rather than kind of taking like musical riffs and remixing the record, I decided to sample each of the sounds so, and then make new, new instruments that I could play in contact, in native instruments contact and via my MIDI keyboard so that I could take any sound and then play it in any key. And that meant then I could just create whatever music I wanted, but I'm using the sounds that they generated using tape and oscillators and things that they you know, would have had to spend a long time uh, making, but they're just, you know, fabulous, fabulous sounds. So, um, so yeah, once I kind of got over the, that kind of pressure and weight of using something that is quite well known and people that are quite well known and, and who I would find as, you know, standing, you know, the kind of idols of my electronic world, then... Um, I was a bit more freer to do what I wanted. So that's how Fairwave was born. And wow. I guess, you know, it it kind of took its own life. And so it became a library record about two years ago. And my manager, Steve, kept saying, you know, it's a really good record. And I was like, yeah, but I didn't write it for anybody. Like, I know, like I said earlier, like I like to work with narrative and story. It didn't have a narrative to me. Like, I know that, you know, the Delia thing is quite a big narrative, but it didn't feel like I had one. I, you know, it's a it's an instrumental record. It was it's obscure, um, and when the first lockdown came, I was like, okay, I'll I'll I have a chance to look at this again and really rethink it because the EMI were really encouraging and they were like, oh, you know, you should put it out there. It's good. Um, so I re-looked at it and I got it mixed again by a wonderful. Um, mixing engineer and he co-produced a, a, two of the tracks to make them a bit more kind of radio heavy the drums where I had kind of gone I've lived with it too long and I do not know what I'm going to do with this and he's called TJ Allen or Tim Allen 
wonderful guy based in Bristol who's worked with like Bats for Lashes and Laura Groves and lots of people. Um, and he was like, yep, yeah, I'll take it. And so he added some beats to Emergence in Nature, which is the single that's been playlisted on Six Music the past few months, and, re and mixed it again with more kind of emphasis on the bass and brightening it so it didn't feel so so me if, if that makes sense it gave it life and he gave it back and I was like oh it's an album <laughs> so, right. so we decided to release it so actually I was going to do it earlier last year and it got kind of put off with a couple of things and yeah and it felt right to be coming out now like spring time when everything's opening up again and the tracks themselves are about nature and electronic music and patterns and it just felt like a good time to do it that's so fascinating hannah and also i mean what an amazing proposition to be given <laughs> but i totally get why that the weight of that you know to be using delia's sounds and to be you know crafting something new i mean the, the weight of that is massive but also just just a wonderful opportunity, like yeah. dream opportunity, isn't it? Oh, totally. Yeah, to have that permission yeah. and yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, it's hard to fathom. There's a part of me that was like, I don't want to do this. And then you do kind of just take it and you go, oh, wow, I, yeah, who else is going to do that? So I'll do it. Um, but yeah, I didn't want anybody to hear it for a long time yeah. <laughs> because I'm afraid, you know, some people are very kind of precious about early sounds and and mm. and also, you know, the people that are on that record, two of them are still alive. So I didn't want to kind of, you know, take somebody else's work and go, hey, you know, it's but I guess when the label and the publishers own it, then that's they have the rights to do that and give it to someone. And luckily, you know, I'm friends with quite a few people in the Radiophonic Workshop and they have really loved it. So that's really nice to hear because that is quite nerve wracking. Yeah, 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 no, that's really good. Um, no, I definitely, I was, you know, listening to it a few times. I've actually pre-ordered the record. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> no, I'm excited. I've got the hot pink one. Oh, so. <laughs> you will have it in your yeah. lap very soon. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I was just like writing down things that were coming to my mind and I definitely, you know, all these building interlocking parts that kind of come together, it's almost like a sonic kind of tapestry. It's almost like a fabric to it and there's just this building and um, and also this intermingling, especially emergence in nature, that there's a particular sound that sounds like either an insect or a bird. It's got like a kind of almost like a rattling cooing. Um, but then you've got all these quite industrial sounding sounds as well. Yeah, yeah, I think it was really important to mix that. I guess I guess what I felt was that that was of that era and something that was very current to them, you know, that kind of movement of capitalism and in, indust, industry and widening that out, you know, to the rest of the world that began then. And there was fear around it, you know, Soviet kind of fear as well. And I guess this feels like, um, you know that organic and the mix of the industrial it's more kind of eco aware because we are in an era that we are, have to be and it is about recycling and reusing sounds and and it just felt like okay it might not be this record might not be for the future but it's definitely for now and yeah mm -hmm. layering of tapestries was really important especially the kind of like the natural side of it the root side of it like the the title fur wave when I was looking up uh, titles that I could call 
the record and and the tracks um i was looking at, at patterns in nature that occur naturally but that could relate to electronic music and fir waves are fir trees on mountainsides that when the wind hits them it constantly kind of creates these um or how do I say it, but it constantly creates these waves of fir trees that look like sound waves because the wind is hitting the first ones and that's killing them and the ones at the back are allowed to grow and then it, it reoccurs so you get this kind of wave of trees growing up and then growing down again as they go along a mountainside. Wow. And it's in Canada and Japan mostly um, in very specific places, but it just felt like... <gasps> There it is. It looks like a sound wave, and there's fir trees. So, um, so that became so. A lot of the tracks are in that cycle of things like carbon cycle and um, things that naturally occur, rather than kind of forcing um, natural into it. If that makes sense. It's really fascinating. I I really like also the way you talk about how at the moment our anxiety is very much around the planet and global warming and that you are engaging in this act of recycling sound. It's interesting because there's lots of interlocking sounds in the album, but there's all the tracks that I've heard already. And there's lots of inter- interlocking concepts and ideas that come into that. Um, yeah, so what a fascinating project. So it seems like Hannah, and I can really relate to this myself. It seems like you enjoy, maybe I'm presuming you enjoy bringing lots of different ideas and analogies and metaphors and concepts together into the projects that you make. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> yeah <definitely laughs> because that's that's more than storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, like I totally get what you're talking about with needing a narrative and that that brings stuff, stuff to life and that helps you get from A to B. But I think there's something bigger than that in your work is when it goes beyond that and there's kind of there's layers basically and there's interconnecting things that you may not be necessarily aware of the first time you hear it mm. but that's that's why you have a kind of almost lifelong relationship with that work because as you get older as well or as you go through different experiences it starts to mean certain things to you too thinking about you know you've released for wave you've done so much um this year it seems like with um, the different productions that you've worked on doing music and um, and collaborations as well. I'm wondering, where do you feel like you're being pulled in the future? What ideas or concepts or mm-hmm. even just instruments are lighting you up? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm massively... Okay, so I've just uh, recorded, or in the process of recording, a piece for the Para Orchestra, who are based in Bristol and they um, are an amazing group of individuals that are disabled and non-disabled and they work together to perform these pieces and they commissioned me to write a piece for them and I managed to get that done in 2020 so that we could record it in 21. Um, And uh, it is very, very much of the low and sound of an orchestra so cellos double bass contrabass recorders uh you know bass clarinets bassoons it's it's definitely got that you know alto flutes um it's it excites me those kind of things really excite me and and funny enough they kind of 
TV things, the jobs that I've got going on, have all embraced that more woodwind type world. Um, because I just find it really exciting that and synths, like modular synths, analog synths, like with a Minimoog, it just sounds beautiful. Uh, there's something really organic and seamless that happens with it. It doesn't feel like you're listening to a synth. It doesn't feel like you're necessarily listening to the clarinets. It's a, it's mm. a melding. So yeah, that's exciting. And I think that will happen more. And you know, I've got to the stage where I'd really like to p play with bigger ensembles as well, like the power orchestra and, and everything so far has been quite small because of budgets and, and it's getting to a stage where you know, maybe one day I'll get to go to Abbey Road and record an orchestra and and that will be incredible. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so so that's where I would like it to go. And I think when yeah. you put it out there, then things do happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I'm wondering as well, so there's like two questions that come to, to my head then that I'm thinking people listening are going to be asking in their head maybe. Um, number one is... So, you know, you, you are doing so, so well, which is so wonderful to see. And what do you put that down to? Because so many musicians are grappling with this. How do I, you know, follow my dream and my passion? Yeah. What What is in that? What's in that secret sauce or that recipe, Hannah? Yeah, there's several things. <laughs> um, the, yeah. the fact that, you know, I guess from the outside world when you say you're doing so well but you don't see the hours that go into it like I'm obsessed I work constantly and have worked like that for years like 15 years I've been doing music so professionally so you know it's it's a journey and I guess the youthful 20 year old me I wish I could have gone back and said it will happen just have patience just relax, enjoy your skills and you know whereas I was like no I want to be doing more, I want to be doing this and and yes that enthusiasm is good because it pushes you but also and drives you but also you stop you stop enjoying things sometimes you think that it's all against you and the world's against you and it's a closed door it was actually the kind of thing that I've learned is anything is possible like I may not be signed to a major label or have like a three album record de deal be it major or independent it's always been kind of licensing agreements or or small you know wonderful small little labels but you know there was a part of me that was like why am I never signed to a label why don't I have that but then I've had a career where I've been able to make decisions and choices and creative things that have informed me to create me into an artist like I don't think any label would have if I'd have said to a label yeah I'm gonna make a colliery brass band record and we're gonna tour with it they would have told me to get lost because it was so expensive Absolutely. um and so you know I went down the funding route and got arts council funding um so I guess persistence and good quality consistency <laughs> and um the someone taught me the seven p's <laughs> <laughs> which oh, is great let's hear the seven p's <laughs> i'm gonna write these down <laughs> <laughs> which is proper prior planning prevents piss poor performance <laughs> <laughs> and i think it's like an army term or something but <laughs> but it's stuck That's with great. me because like every single thing i do i will not go into it without knowing the detail and yeah. preparing for it in every possible way um 
making sure I know the answers to stuff and making sure I know how to do stuff and asking for help. I think that's the most important thing is like sometimes you just can't learn things off YouTube. You have to ask for help. Yes, yes. Great advice for sure. And um, and I know that also, um, see, something that is definitely um, different about your career is I, I've definitely probably kept myself from collaborating with people because unlike you, I was so super aware of the how people might see me as a woman in music, even from the age of about 14 or 15. I was just so aware of it and I was so used to people objectifying me because my main instrument was my voice, mm. even though I played clarinet and I played guitar. But because of especially being dyslexic, I never quite got the hang of music notation. Um, I always had did everything by ear. So I, I've definitely looked back on my career and in some ways I don't regret the fact that I've very much followed my own path. But I wonder, you know, what would have happened if I collaborated more. But I know that you have a manager. And so one thing that I, I kind of wish I had done actually a, a long time ago was found a manager. But I think that at the time, because the industry was changing so much, mm. I didn't even know that that was a thing. You know, like when you when you come out of your music degree... And I went to a very experimental college. I went to Dartington College of Arts. There was no prep of this is how you become a pop musician, especially. And I didn't even, th I don't even think I really wanted that. But because I used my voice and I sang and I wrote songs, that's kind of what you think you, sh you should be doing. And it wasn't until my mid-twenties that I realised, actually, I really, really love sound mm. and just everything about that as well as voice and songs and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, how much difference do you think it made? It's made having a manager and collaborating and being in other people's bands and things like that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's quite, that's a great question because it's it's quite long as well, <laughs> the answer. Yeah, I know, sorry. Um, <laughs> but first of all, I was really lucky that when uh, we moved to Yorkshire, my secondary school was amazing for music like there was three school bands there was beginners juniors and seniors and that totaled probably about 250 children um, and teenagers and we would have concerts we, we had rehearsals every week you made your way up you kind of achieved you got your grades you, you know you did well you got promoted into the next band um, we even had like an elite band and we went to uh, the Ukraine, a, a town called Golovka that was twinned with Barnsley at the time and had all these experiences. All my friends were the musicians in the band. It, I was lucky in that sense. It was my safe space. I wasn't on my own and, and I really treasure all of that kind of work. And, you know, in between our school concerts, the music teachers were so encouraging to get your own bands together and then you got a chance to perform. And because you saw the older fifth years or fourth years kind of playing, you know, their songs and, and sounding beautiful, it was always something to aim for. Um, so I guess that kind of, like, collaboration has been in my blood from a very early age, that kind of want to collaborate, because I do believe that sometimes when you're together in the room there is something greater than the sum of your parts there is this unspoken thing that is created that you could not have created on your own individually but it is made in that 
in that sense and I think you know having the kind of having the the notion to accept and credit people and and value every single person in that room as well it, it has always stayed with me so and you know I have worked with people that will take credit <laughs> but um <laughs> but you know standing your cause I guess having a manager is a different aspect because I've maybe been through three or four uh, when I started out oh, okay I didn't have a manager, but I needed somebody to negotiate better fees for gigs and and oh yeah, and just be a kind of <laughs> voice to to make something better than what it was. So I had my own manager called Mary, <laughs> and, and she was me. And she yeah. she that's so good. She did the she did the bit of the paperwork. She was the one that said no this isn't going to work it was like almost putting myself into that character and it, and it worked for a bit oh. you know a, a short time it was needed and it worked and I would say there's yeah. probably a lot of people out there that have their own pretend managers yep. but it helps um yeah it gives you distance and yeah I went through three or four that didn't understand me wanted me to be more of a pop singer-songwriter when I applied yeah. for funding to get something they walked away because they thought getting funding from PRSF at the time wasn't cool Whereas, like, now, it's, like, you know... It's a lifeline. Total lifeline. Yeah. And I was like, well, you're not the right people, then, if you don't think that's cool. So... And then Steve came along. I mean, he was managing Gary Newman um, and John Fox. That's how we met. And he now managed his gazelle twin and Wrangler. And... um, But he gets that you cannot just be an artist if you're independent. You have to do other bits you cannot just be a singer in a band you cannot just mm-hmm. take that and run with it that it will not have you a lifelong career and if that is what you want so Steve as a manager is brilliant and he is the person I'll send stuff to and say what do you think um but it is driven by me creatively he doesn't say I want you to do this ever um and you know, but it's got to the stage where I can't manage paperwork. I can't. I don't have the time to do stuff, or I, or it's just my creativity's gone. Like I don't have time to write. And when you're working on things that are quite high pressured, with especially with productions, media productions, you don't have time to do that. You need someone that's you trust that's going to take care of things. Um, and I do trust him. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do feel like um, anyone listening to this who is grappling with, you know maybe starting their career but they may be a decade in already mm-hmm. having that imaginary manager where you can compartmentalize that part of the work that you do it, I definitely can imagine I wish I'd done that actually because I think it helps you be more removed and more assertive like this fear isn't high enough you know I've always had to do that as Isabel yeah. and it's I definitely feel like anyone li- listening to this if there's one really great nugget of advice like there's so many from this podcast episode but to start becoming a manager like an imaginary manager because I definitely think it will help you become more confident in putting yourself out there for opportunities in negotiating you know your boundaries and your your non-negotiables all that kind of stuff um and I yeah I just it makes so much sense and then I also think that probably I don't know, you can tell me, Hannah, but did it give you a bit more clarity when you then had a manager over the role that they were having? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you have to be realistic as well. If, you were, if your pretend manager was making such demands 
and wanting this on the rider, somebody's going to twig. But it is a protective barrier. It is a, a buffer, basically. That is what its use of. It's, it's, it gives you the chance to be the artist, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does, definitely. Mm. Can you tell us about your, yeah, your journey of learning to manage budgets and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, I think it's really important. I think we're in a, an era where you cannot just be a musician and artist. You, more, you have to think more entre- entrepreneurial. Um, so knowing what budget you have to work with, knowing how certain things work, getting things added up. And I know it's like the boring side of the, the business, but working with a budget is so informative. You know, especially like, okay, Furway, for example, is, um, it's a self-released album. Uh, I have a budget that tells me how much I've spent and then, oh, okay, it's uh, it's in debt. But when everything starts to come in and the vinyl starts to come in, then it will make itself back. It will probably break even. I don't think it will make money because we're not doing festivals and gigging at the moment, which always kind of tops things up. But I know that and I know how much it is and I know what it is to work to. Um, You know, I know then how much design costs, I know manufacturing costs and all those things teach you how the industry works and, and makes you kind of, have some respect for the music that you're making and knowing your limitations it it kind of I don't know for me it doesn't put me off it makes me go right I've got this what can I do with it it's kind of like watching Challenge Annika or something um yeah and I think that's always given me a bit of an independent head one one of the first guys I hardly ever speak of David but David Ford was an artist he's in Eastbourne and um, he gave me my first ever session gig in terms of like we toured, I played trombone and piano and violin for him and we toured, this is from like say 2005 to 2009-10, uh, we supported so many people all over the country, uh, I played with him on his own, I played with him with his band and he drove himself everywhere. He funded everything himself. And you know, we were playing sold out venues, three to 500 every night, and it was all him. Like he maybe had a sound engineer that could drive and help unload, but we did everything. And it really gave me a grounding of like, okay, you want to make something happen? You bloody get off your ass and you do it yourself. And knowing your budgets and knowing what you have to work with was, more training than anything I'd learned in university. Yeah, really good point for sure. And I think you're so right that now you do have, you really do have to see your music like a business if you want it to, if you want to serve that music, you know, if you want it to have a life beyond just the next album that you can actually support that and sustain that career. Another question is, so, you know, you said you've released this without, um, the support of a label so it's very much a DIY release what's the kind of biggest advice you'd give to somebody else releasing music um, <laughs> I would say your press release is really important um, a press release needs to tell the story quickly so that people don't scan over it and kind of read a load of things I would always say um, always have five things you can hang your hat on so there's the, the who you are, what you've done, why it's important, and you know two other things that matter, but no more than that. And if you can 
put it into those five things, you will have a successful press release. Ask pe other people for, for examples of them. Um, I mean, I've got to the stage now where I've, I, I, can, I know from the budgets that I can, and I know from how many records I will sell, that I can employ a, a radio plugger and I can employ a press team or a press lady um, and make sure those records are sold. Um, but that's after doing it for years and years. But if I was just doing it, um, I would not press up a thousand records thinking you were going to sell them. I think stick to what you think is realistic. And right now with no gigs and people do buy things at gigs, it's harder. So, um, so really think realistically rather than spend a load of money and then sit with a load of boxes in your house full of merch that's never going to shift. <laughs> I have yeah. a whole box of t-shirts <laughs> and it's sat in my living room and I, I really want to chuck them away because they've been there mm -hmm. for like 10 years. But they can't. I think that, to be honest, every, every DIY artist has that. I have that. I have, yeah. <laughs> I have CDs and vinyl that you know. So, so for me, like I stopped gigging because of health problems, and so it, it really, really, I really burnt out just before I released my last album. So I have vinyl and CD that I never gigged with, so I never shifted it. Yeah. I think every DIY artist has that, and that's just again, it's taking responsibility for that process. You have to accept that that there will be losses and gains yeah. and there may be a, a cupboard that is filled with <laughs> your merch. <laughs> yeah, so it, it makes sense yeah. not to... I guess if you spend a load of money on it and then it's just sat there, it'll put you off doing it again. Yeah. I think that's, a, you know, just be realistic. Keep Be in charge of the money. It is your money and it is your career and you need that money to... I always say I make music to make more music. Like, I just always have enough that I can go right I can carry on with this um one of the things I found useful actually um is I use a shop now uh Townsend Music but there's plenty out there that uh will stock all the vinyl and everything else so they will keep a hold of it and they will sell it and package it off and yes they take a cut out of your your records but at least then you don't have it in your house and you don't have to spend all the time uh posting everything off which I did do for a very long time but now yeah. I've freed up a lot of things so that I can actually work and make more music. Yeah, and that means that you ha you it's more sustainable. You have the energy to actually yeah. do the stuff that only you can do. Yeah. You know, someone else can package up a vinyl, but only you can make Hannah Peel music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I don't think yeah. I can, but yeah. I think we all go well, through actually, it. Hannah, don't we? No, do you know what? Yeah, Hannah, I'd love to talk about this if you've got any time, mm -hmm. because um, this is something that I think all musicians struggle with, and I hear it so much from students, and I've had phases of this as well. Um, do, do you have lapses of confidence, mm -hmm. either creatively, technically? You know, can you oh, talk God. about that? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> It never goes away. I've just accepted that it's never going to go away and then you embrace mm. it. And I guess I have always had that relationship of thinking, and especially when you think the world is against you or you haven't got what other people have, you know, whether it be on a roster or you have a label and all these things that I, I kind of like was so hung up about for ages, that does knock your confidence and it stops you from creating. And... I guess one of the things I've come to accept is that 
I am never going to be an artist that is going to make an electronic pop or a pop record after pop record and I am never going to want to be the artist that is going to want to start in the videos. I kind of want to take a back seat. <laughs> and so when I kind of accepted that and my own voice, um, then things became easier. And now, you know, yes, I have little wobbles, and but I know that if I, I have certain tricks that make me work, like, so I know if I go for a walk, I'll come back and I'll have something, or I'll have a fresh head. Or I know that if I just, you know, why force yourself to do something one night when you, you clearly can't do it? So, and I, actually creatively anyway, even like, okay, I wrote a piano piece the other day and I, I recorded it and then I listened back the next day and I hate it. <laughs> I'm like, that's a load of crap. <laughs> but it's stored in there and it's a little idea that can be used and one day I might come back to it and go, ah, that's perfect for this. And, and then I'll recycle it. So like half the things that I'm putting out are, are recycled from a time that maybe I didn't think it was of worth. So it means that mm. in my back pocket, no matter what, is always a kind of a series of pieces or, or, and stuff that I can draw on and I can go to and I can be quick and inspirational and rather than kind of having to think of something and then play it and then think of it again. Um, I don't have the time for that anymore. I just think if I'm not writing it, that's that's it. Move on, and you have to be quick. Mm. Um, but you know, working in TV and things has taught me that even more—the kind of quickness of things. You have to let things go sometimes. Yeah, really good advice, definitely. Um, also, what, another thing that's related to that, I guess, is you—you you were saying that for a long time you've worked incredibly hard. You know, hours and hours and hours. I can very much relate to that. But for me, it has really compromised my health. Mm. Um, and I don't know if that's the case for you, but I wondered where is that is that those hours that you're putting in, are they strictly necessary or does some of it come from um, a kind of workaholism or um, an insecurity or a self-imposed pressure? Because, I mean, I, I've been there. I've got the, the duvet, the T-shirt, everything. Yeah, I'd say all of that. <laughs> Workaholism. <laughs> I don't, you know, I've, um, I've never, I've grown up, I've never known anything else than music. So it is in my psyche, if I'm not making it and I'm not doing it, yes, it is, it can compromise my health sometimes. Um, I would definitely say that I have changed my diet to suit my body now because I work like you know like I would never have been intolerable to wheat I am now like things like that that you think aren't going to cause a problem but they cripple you like so I think yeah I've worked around things but I can't stop like it, and especially because it's been locked down as well I feel like there's not much else to do than just work sometimes and that mentally can affect you so I think you know having walks every day and making sure that it's not just yeah, I guess, yeah, there is an obsessiveness there that is, but it's a healthy one. It's one that keeps driving me forward and and it's not like, you know, a lot of my friends have settled down and had babies and things like that. It's not, that's not in my, not in my psyche. That's not what I want to do. So, so I guess in some ways, you know, I've got a little puppy now that, that fulfills that side. <laughs> but yes, I would say yeah. it isn't healthy. 
I would say that, you know, the hours that I do um, would probably be better off sometimes just sitting down and watching TV instead of stressing mm-hmm. over something. Um, but it's knowing when to stop. And, oh, one of the really good things I learned, I think it was it was a writer that wrote about it. Maybe it's a, a well-known thing. They always stopped when they were feeling good, always stopped writing. Oh. And I totally go with that now. I, like if I'm starting to any get a sense, anything that is slightly negative, that's it, off. Just to keep that positivity. Every time you sit down, it's positive and you want to keep going. Mm-hmm. And then when you go back to it, you want to keep going. You want to keep it up. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you've struggled over something, it can put you off for a week or two. And you don't want to touch it. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Hannah. It's been so interesting, um, you know, because I feel like not only have we talked about a lot of the musical side and what you've got into in terms of tech and your career, but it's really, I think it's always really revealing and really constructive in music for musicians to talk about this stuff too, because it's always going on behind the scenes and it's so easy to look at other musicians and think, oh, you know, they're all fine because you see their social media updates and you see, Mm -hmm. you know, the things they're doing. But like you say, behind that is hours of work. But also behind that is, you know, lots of psychological somersaults Mm -hmm. sometimes and, um, you know, juggling lots of quite boring things as well. But also maybe a lot of self-doubt sometimes. And so I think it's important that people hear us talk about that because, you know, there will be people listening to this that feel that. And I think it's important to know that that's normal and it's kind of par for the course. And I, I personally feel that when you when you're working in the creative arts that is the work you know it's it's not actually necessarily honing your instrument or learning about marketing yes that those are skills that are great but the work the daily work is is having a handle or an awareness of this stuff yeah totally i don't know what you think about no, that i totally agree it, you know i wish i i wish i'd kind of had a podcast when i was in my 20s that said you know everybody has doubts Everybody has fears. Everybody has to manage budgets and think about things, even the likes of, like, Paul Weller. And I think that's one thing that I would say is working with a lot of older artists throughout my career has taught me a lot of things that these things don't go away. You just have to manage them and live with them and deal with them. And sometimes you have to get over yourself. (laughs) Well, I absolutely loved chatting with Hannah about her experiences in music the liberation and equality she found in using technology in her work and her relatable wobbles of confidence that we all face as artists. I can also thoroughly recommend checking out her new album Furwave, which is just so rich in sonic textures, interlocking musical patterns and as Hannah shared today, history too. Just go to hannahpeel.com to check it out now alongside all of Hannah's other exciting projects. And remember, if you're ready to inject a bit of oomph back into your music, but you love a little guidance, it's time to get in touch with your female producer spirit guide. Just go to femalediymusician.com forward slash quiz. That's femalediymusician.com forward slash quiz to discover exactly who she is and what she's got to say. Now, in next week's episode, we're tackling a pretty tricky question. What's the point of making art if no one else is going to care about it? For most artists, this is a common and legitimate question. There's so much more that goes into if and why your music is widely celebrated beyond the components of its musical parts. And while most of us understand this and know that outward success is largely out of our control, 
it can still feel a little disheartening before we've even begun the process of making music. So why begin? Why make art? Join me in next week's episode where we'll be diving into exactly that. But till then, take care and I'll catch you here soon. So, how do you like that episode, dear listener? If you loved it, and you know someone else who would love it too, be a good friend and share it with them. Go on, spread the girls twiddling knobs love.